Heavy Cardboard, episode 148, Shelf of Opportunity. Coming to you from what is just honestly a beautiful autumn afternoon here in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. I'm your host, Edward Euler. It's just me, y'all. Just me today. So before we get into what the main part of this episode is going to be, I figure, you know what? Just dive right in and just get it started. So what have I been playing lately? Well, 2038, that that was 18xx in space. That was a fun time. So got together with the fellas. Uh, for the first time in what feels like eons, and uh, Joe Huber, Joe Vershunanen, Jeff Spear, and I got together and recorded a playthrough of 2038. It was their idea, but they were comfortable with it. We all wore masks and everything and sat around the table and, and played it, and I don't want to ruin how that played out, but really enjoyed my playthrough of... 2038. Again, it's an 18xx just in space. And there's a ton of randomness in this game as far as you're going to be drawing in a bag and uh, figuring out what kind of materials you're going to be able to mine, whether it's ice or other uh, more lucrative um, nickel, other things like that. And but it very much is an 18xx designed by Tom Lehman and really enjoyed my playthrough of it. But I will say having somebody who is a legitimate expert at the game in Joe Huber there to help you maximize, oh, no, you want to do this because it has some very unintuitive and very original mechanisms in it for how you run your ships. And it can be very AP inducing at times and having somebody like Joe to be able to do that for you or with you, I should say, not for you, but with you, definitely helps. So enjoyed the play of it, but uh, definitely not going to be like my favorite 18xx, but I enjoyed it. Plus, oh my God, there were actual humans at the table with me, which was awesome. Don't get me wrong. I'm fortunate enough to be able to play games with Jess fairly often, but having other people, I mean, it's just nice, right? So that was that was a nice change. Also, played uh, the search for Planet X, and I gotta say, I am not really huge on deduction games. Number one and number two, I really am not super keen about board games that basically make a app mandatory to use with your board games. But this, if there was ever going to be an exception, uh, the search for Planet X. That was really, really good. Uh, loved it. Loved it solo. Uh, just a really clever deduction and inductive reasoning game. And the way the app is implemented, that it basically runs as a, as a bot kind of its own thing. But it doesn't cheat necessarily. And it's what it makes me think of and this is probably dating myself, and I imagine a lot of y'all out there won't know what these are. But there are, like, when you would go to, like, Barnes & Noble, or more likely for me, it was truck stops or whatever, because we moved a lot when I was young. 
There are books, or I guess they're magazines, I guess, of just various brain teaser type things, right? They had word searchers and they had crosswords and all that stuff in them. But they also had these logic puzzles, like that it, it basically was a grid, like, okay, if this is true, then that means that and that can't be true, but it also means that this or that could be true. And I loved those as a kid and as a teen and as I grew up. And that's kind of what the search for Planet X is, except it's about astronomy and looking for uh, Planet X, which in real life might actually exist. We don't know yet. And it was just really good. So color me impressed with both, even though you have to ha use the app. Uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed my play of this one as a solo game. So definitely uh, recommend checking that one out. Another uh, solo at the gates of Loyang. It was fine. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it, but it was it was fine. It just I know it's thought of as one of Stefan Fell. I'm sorry, uh, Uwe Rosenberg's better games. It's fine. Not one of my favorites. Like it's not Agricola. It's not Orit Labora. But I enjoyed it enough as a as a solo game. I've played it multiplayer, but it's it's been a minute since I played it multiplayer. But solo, I thought it was it was decent. It was solid. Pretty, pretty small footprint and simple to go through. But since I've been playing more and more solo games, I wouldn't rate it as one of my top solo games. But I thought it was enjoyable. So yeah, I think it's a way. Okay. Renature as a two-player game, mano y mano against Jess. Get my teeth kicked in obviously, but enjoyed it. Uh, cool, chunky bits, uh, upcoming game from Capstone. I liked it. Didn't love it. It was fine. Enjoyed it enough, though. Another one, Super Skill Pinball, uh, 4K. It's basically a rolling right from Jeff Engelstein and WizKids. I enjoyed it. I worry about it overstaying its welcome a little bit. Uh, Jess and I played it a number of times. We also played it with the herd live on some of the on a couple of live streams. Uh, that was that was a good time, but I worry about it over uh, overstaying. Like a rolling right shouldn't be as long as this one. I I don't know. I enjoyed it. That's the thing. It's got four different maps. I've only or four different boards. I've played two of them so far, and it's funny. I enjoyed the first board the carnival or something along those lines. And then Jess enjoyed the like cyberpunk one a little bit more than I did, but enjoyed both of them, but didn't love it. I'm really, really curious to see the third and fourth boards play, but for a rolling, right? I thought it had some really meaningful and really interesting decisions throughout it, which made it a legitimate thinky filler. But it definitely ran longer than I expected it to. But I don't know if it overstayed. I want to play it more, which is a good sign. But yeah, Super Skill Pinball 4K. Upcoming from uh, WizKids and Jeff Engelstein. And the last one that I want to talk about as far as have been playing is Field Commander Rommel. Now, I did Field Commander Napoleon a couple times. And I've done Field Commander Rommel a couple of times. And I can unequivocally say, eh, whatever. I, again, 
Dan Versen Games has made some interesting solo games, but the Field Commander series has been kind of underwhelming to me. They just feel like a castle defense game. In in some regards, you're you're pushing forward, so you're not defending and and fighting off a constant onslaught of whatever it is that you're fighting against. But Field Commander Rommel, it felt like just a never-ending wave of more and more and more. And it just, it felt repetitive. It felt long for what it is. And it just, yeah, not really what I was looking for for a solo experience. So, yeah. Now, that said, there is a field commander, Alexander. Alexander the Great. I'm interested in it just because the theme appeals to me more than the others, but Field Commander Rommel should appeal to me, and it does, because it's about Erwin Rommel, right? Whether that's uh, up there on the D-Day stuff or whether it's down Desert Fox, you know, down in North Africa. But in the end, the game just kind of, eh, not, not, not my cup of tea, I guess. And I, I will say that I enjoyed Field Commander Rommel more than I did Field Commander Napoleon because... It stripped out what felt like unnecessary stuff and unnecessary complexity that Field Commander Napoleon had that I don't think made the game any better. And in fact, I would argue that Field Commander Rommel is a better game than Field Commander Napoleon. Now, I am also biased that Napoleonic's time period is my least interesting all through history. But yeah, just the Field Commander series so far has been... to acquisitions it's been a kind of a short list here the big one we'll start off with high frontier for all got a i don't know if this is a pre-production or if this is actually just an advanced copy sent it was airship direct from the factory in china here and i will say this man does this thing look pretty i'm looking forward to being able to stream this I have promised everybody out there that we are going to, and by we, it's going to be me and resident expert Jeff Spear, as well as Dr. Joe Rashenanen. We're going to do a full playthrough of High Frontier for All, along with Module 0, 1, and 2, which is going to be by far the longest stream in the history of the show. But we played High Frontier 4, but with the High Frontier three components last year, I think it was. And looking at the new components, I just feel like they've just done a really good job with everything that is in this box. It looks good. It's clear. The iconography looks pretty good. Now, I haven't delved too deep down that rabbit hole, but <laughs> the player aid I believe is eight pages, uh, a fold out of the player aid, which is comical, but it's high frontier people, right? However, the one thing that I will give it super, super high marks for, for sure, is the space diamonds and all of the kind of ramping up. If you were completely new to high frontier, it basically is a hand holding experience to get you used to it, to get you up to playing the what I would consider the base game of High Frontier is. 
and just kind of easing people into it. Now, that doesn't mean that other people, uh, some of y'all, if not most of y'all that are listening to this, can't just jump in. You could, but if you don't want to, you don't have to. And making this more accessible to more people, where's the downside in that? So everything looks great. I'm super stoked to to break this out, but man, that's going to be a marathon session. And I'm looking forward to it. It helps when I have somebody here like Jeff Spear, who he was the one who actually created the player aids for High Frontier for All, the ones that I was talking about. He's the one who created them for the game. So I feel comfortable saying he's the resident expert. There are a few people out there that probably have more experience with High Frontier than him. And having him on the stream, that's obviously going to pay dividends as well as just having his expertise whenever we play the game. But more importantly, his enthusiasm for this and his excitement of, oh, wow, you can do this is just infectious. And I think that helps because in the end, High Frontier very much is an experience game, right? It's, oh, wow, I look, I landed. I landed on Mars and not only landed on Mars, I successfully got off of Mars, which can be really, really hard to do sometimes. I'm just stoked about it. But yeah, so that arrived and it looks gorgeous. Can't wait to delve into that. Got a prototype of Mercado de Lisboa, which if it, I feel bad saying this is a prototype because I think this is this. Again, it might be an advanced uh, pre-production copy, but it's gorgeous. Really looks good. Basically takes the building mechanism of Lisboa from Vital Lacerda. He teamed up with Julian uh, Pombo. And they created a thinky filler for Eagle Griffin and turned that building mechanism into its own game. So looking forward to delving into that. And then finally, Terra Mystica Merchants of the Seas from uh, this one came from Capstone. I, I, I literally know nothing about this expansion. Obviously, I know about Terra Mystica. I know nothing about this expansion. Maybe this will get me to where I actually enjoy Terra Mystica again. So we'll see. But yeah, that's what's arrived recently. As far as what I'm hunting or anticipating and, you know, on the shopping list, honestly, it's a bunch of GMT games, but uh, you're going to hear about all those here soon. So we're just going to table that we'll talk about that here in a little bit and as far as what i'm looking forward to playing oh my god that's this entire episode right this entire episode is about shelf of opportunity games i haven't played yet stuff i'm stoked to play so let's get into that shall we what the hell is a shelf of opportunity right okay let's be honest it's your shelf of shame but hold on, we're adults. Why the hell do you have anything that you're ashamed of on your shelf? You shouldn't. You bought it or you acquired it in some way because you had interest in it. I imagine that interest is still there because why is it still sitting there? Why didn't you get rid of it one way or the other? So why, why, why is it shameful to have a shelf or, in my case, maybe a bookcase of unplayed games? Well, okay, fine. My situation might be a little bit different than yours because, 
Well, I review board games for a living, right? Review them, play them, yada, yada, yada. But to hell with this shelf of shame crap. There's no, we're adults. You spend your money however you want. Nothing to be ashamed of here. Nothing. So to hell with that. Shelf of opportunity. Because you have the opportunity to enjoy and explore these universes that are in these boxes of cardboard. I can't wait to delve into these. There's a reason I made this list, right? So yeah, shelf of opportunity. To hell with the shame. Ah, I disagree wholeheartedly with that. So I started out this episode talking about how I really didn't have a clue as to what I was going to record when the Tuesday coming around and I didn't know what do I want to talk about? And I didn't want to do another review. I just, I wasn't just feeling a review. So I was like, okay. And then it hit me. I was like, dude, shelf of opportunity. How about I talk about that? Eh. But then I started questioning myself. I was like, would that even be interesting? Because I haven't played these games. So I don't know. They might not be good games. You're right. But I was like, but maybe people would find that interesting. I don't know. So in the end, I was like, you know what? To hell with it. Let me just hit record and go. And then I immediately hit stop. And I thought about this. I was like, uh, okay, if I'm going to do this, I better do some prep work for it. And I was like, how do I do that? So I thought, okay, how about I do this? I'm going to grab a notepad, go into the library, and the library doubles as my closet, but so went into the library, and I started walking around and looking at, there's a plethora, F.A., of unplayed games in there, but I'm not excited about playing all of them, right? And so I just started to look around and I systematically went through them all and I looked around and I was like, wrote down ones that, yeah, I'm excited to dive into that. Ooh, oh yeah. Oh, hey, I forgot about that one. Okay, cool. And then when I was done with that, I came back into the studio and I have a bookshelf here and I went through any of those games or any of those. Okay. Wrote those down. Then I went downstairs because I have games have taken over my entire HCHQ here. And I was like, okay, are there any, Oh yeah, there's a big one. Totally forgot about that. Okay. What about those? Yep. Added those. Okay. And then I looked at this list and I counted them up and I decided, you know what? Why does it have to be a certain number? Why do I have to limit it? This is my show. I can make it whatever number I want to make it. And that number was 41. And then I realized 41 is just a crappy number. Okay, I can find one more. I went and I found one more. So 42, answer to life, the universe, and everything. So I have more than this of games shelf on my shelf shelves piles of opportunity. However, going through all of these, basically what this is, is this is my list of games that I'm legitimately excited about and curious to dive into and check out. I'm not saying that all of these games are going to be good. In fact, I would 
feel pretty confident saying that I am not going to like some of these games. And I am also confident saying that not all of these games are going to be good. And not just that Edward doesn't like them, just they're not good games. Possibly, but we'll see. Doesn't mean I'm not excited to play them. So 42 games. And then I set some rules for myself because I feel like you got to do that if you're going to do any kind of list like this. I feel like you need to. So here we go. First off, got to be released. So no upcoming games. Basically, if y'all can't get it, then I didn't count it. Well, you still might not be able to get them because some of them might be out of print. But that's, that's a topic for another day. I couldn't care less whether something's out of print or not because something might have gotten re-released. It might have gotten announced that a new version. I'm just... When do you listen to this? Are you listening to this in 2020? Are you listening to this in 2025? I don't know what's out of print at that point, so I'm not going to bother myself with that. But it must have already been released. The second one, I can't have played it in any form, meaning a prototype. I couldn't have played it on Tabletop Simulator or Tabletopia and online, anything like that. No form or fashion have I played this game. Okay, that seems reasonable. Also, expansions can't be included. So that there goes, you know, I could make a hundred game list of Age of Steam maps that I haven't played yet, but we're not going to do that. And no regular expansions as well are included in this. This is strictly talking base games. Although, in off the top of my head, there are two games on this that I'm specifically including the expansions when I play them because I've heard you need to. Also, any kind of new version or implementation of a game, like, uh, say, like Ground Floor, Ground Floor 2nd Edition. No, the only way I will have included a new version or new implementation of a game is if I never played the original either. I think that seemed re reasonable, so that was another rule I set for myself. Also, and this is the last one, is these games must already be in my collection or can reasonably be acquired. So there's no Horus here, which is one of my grail games that is just impossible to get, and when it is, it's like $600. No, that's never going to be on this list. And like Keetum or Keytown, like the original Key series, like $1,000, no. The answer is no. Now, that's not to say that some of these aren't out of print, but I already own them. And there are a handful, and I do truly mean a handful, of games that I do not own. However, I will be acquiring them soon, be it review copies or review copies, because I want to get these games come hell or high water, because this list of 42 games are games that I'm excited to play. So here we go. All right? That seems like a fair set of rules to have set for myself, I think. So this list of 42 games, it's actually in a number of buckets. And by buckets, I mean kind of groupings of similar things. And it essentially comes down to like four buckets. So just keep that in mind. So that's how I did this. So here we go. The first bucket is going to consist of a total of three games. Now, the reason I put these games together in a bucket is because, well, <laughs> to be honest with you, I expect all three of these games to be disappointments. I don't think these games are going to be good. 
I hope to be wrong. But all three of these games are games from publishers that thus far have been overwhelmingly, well, honestly, disappointing. All right? So the first one up is going to be Prehistory, my number 42. Prehistory, designed by Atia Zogi. I'm probably butchering this. Published by A Games. Now, Prehistory, I don't know a ton about it. It's supposed to be a worker placement uh, game that, that looks compelling. The theme or the setting, being prehistoric, sounded pretty interesting to me as well. And I believe, I, I believe this was a Kickstarter game. I don't want to definitively say that, but prehistory, all one word in case for those out there searching on BGG or Googling or whatever. But basically the, the thing against it is I've heard that it's not really intuitive. The iconography is not great. And the rule book sucks. Oh, sounds like an A games game. Okay, got it. Now, I I I I realize that's kind of harsh, but Ave Roma is a game that I desperately wanted to like. I played it a number of times, and every time we played it, we wanted it to be better than it was. And so far, in a nutshell, basically everything that A games has put out that I've tried, which pretty much is Ave Roma, uh, has been disappointing. And the, the, the look of, of prehistory, I, God, I want this to be good. It looks cool. It sounds good. It has a weight of four out of five on BGG. So I want this to be good. Is it going to be? I don't know. I don't have high expectations, but I'm still looking forward to trying it. So my number 42, Prehistory by A Games. Now, staying within this bucket, <laughs> uh, my next one, uh, I, oh, I'm going to butcher the designer's names, but Martians, A Story of Civilization. No, it is not the one from Portal Games. This is a different one. It designed by Gregors Oklinski and Christoph Wolicki, I think probably butchering that, I apologize, and published by Red Imp Games. Every time I see this on my shelf, I'm like, I really want to play that. It's not rated really high on BGG. I believe, I'm fairly certain this was another Kickstarter game. But the problem with, is it's Red Imp Games. Now, Red Imp Games have games that look really cool and that I've been looking forward to playing. But most recently, the game that I played from them was Pangea. And man, that game looks good. And when we were reading through the rules, it sounded good. And everybody around the table was really excited to play it. This was all pre-COVID. And by the halfway point of the game, everybody was like, how much longer we got with this? That's kind of been my experience with games from Red Imp Games. Now. Martians, a story of civilization, I fear is going, is probably a victim of being too ambitious. They have competitive, they have co-op, they have semi-co-op, and there's a solo version 
of Martians, the story of civilization. It's a worker placement game that just looks good. It looks cool. It sounds great. Worker placement, you know, uh, action point selection, uh, action point uh, allocation game sounded really interesting. But I've read some really bad stuff about this game, and I've heard that the original iteration of the rules was damn near indecipherable. However, the new version of the of the rule book uh, makes it uh, pretty good, or I should say, the rule book has been thought of as pretty decent, and has been. It sounds pretty good in general. There was a uh, there was a post on BGG about this that said uh, how to enjoy Martians: A Story of Civilization, Seven Easy Steps. Number one, burn the rule book, uh, or possibly optionally using it as birdcage liner, is an acceptable alter- alternative. Step two, print the revised rule book. Step three, read it carefully. Pretend there will be a test later. Step four, play enough rounds solo to grok the rules and the turn sequence and then make a solemn oath never to try it solo again. Now, I've heard some people rebuke that, which I'm encouraged by because I'll be honest, I think I would enjoy trying this solo. Step five, invite one to three of your friends, spouse, coworkers, neighbors, etc., to play the initial scenario, quote unquote, new schedule in co-op mode. You kind of lost me there, but okay. Step six, play the rest of the scenarios with those who like the game. Uh, play semi-co-op if you prefer. Okay, uh, maybe. Okay. All right. And step seven, pretend competitive mode doesn't exist. You'll get tempted to try this, I know, but be strong. Now, obviously, this is all written tongue-in-cheek. I have set this game up on the table twice. I have gone through the rule book twice. I've been excited to play it more times than I can count. And for a numerous set of reasons, it has never seen an actual play. And I really want to play this game, even though I fully admit that this is probably going to end up being a disappointment. I want to play Martians, a story of civilization, my number 41. So number 40 on my list is another, as it just so happens, Worker placement game. I didn't realize that all three of these were in some way a worker placement game. Um, I mean, but let's face it. If you've been a fan of this show for any amount of time, you know I like auctions. I like worker placement, et cetera, or action selection, whatever you want to call it. Nonetheless, shouldn't surprise folks too much. But this next one is from a company that had a number of games that I wanted to be better than they actually were. And the ones that come to mind are a game by the name of Praetor, Progress, Evolution of Technology. Well, those are a couple of them. We'll leave it at that. And this company actually doesn't really exist anymore. Now, the people exist, and they're still producing games, but they teamed up, got bought, merged, however you want to word that, with another company that I know y'all are familiar with. And this company is NSKN Games. The company that they merged with, or however that came about, is a company, like I said, I know y'all know, and that's Board and Dice. You know, the folks of Teotihuacan, the upcoming Tewatensuyu, Tekenu, 
and Trismegistus, you know, the T games, uh, as well as a number of other games. But one of the games, and the one that's on this list, because I've played all those other ones, is a game that looks cool. I hope it's better than what I've heard, but we'll see. And it's one of the games that also I've heard that you should play with the expansion if you're going to play it. And that is Simurg, S-I-M-U-R-G-H. And the expansion is Call of the Dragon Lord. It looks really interesting. The board looks a little busy, not going to lie. And I fully expect this to be meh. But I hope, because every time when I go into the library, it just so happens that all of these games, Prehistory, Martians, A Story of Civilization, and Submerg, are all happen to be in places around the library that they always catch my eye. So you would think I would play the damn things. Get them off the list. Finally, decide whether or not to keep them. But for one reason or another, they haven't made it to the table yet. So Submerg, with the Call of the Dragon Lord, is my number 40 on my shelf of opportunity. So thus ends the first bucket. All right, so this next bucket is going to be four games long. And this one is basically, are these games as good as the games that they're going to get compared to? I don't know. And to be honest with you, the answer is probably no in every single one of the iterations. But there's still games that I'm interested in playing and want to find out for myself. So here they are. Starting off with number 39, a game in which I do not own it, but I will own soon. And that is Stellar Horizons. What's labeled as a build-your-own-space-program game designed by the second astrophysicist that I know and the only other one not named Phil Eklund that I know. And this one's designed by Andrew Rader and published by Compass Games. Now, I sat down for an interview with Andrew Rader, shoot, two years ago at this point, I think. It's, it's been a day. He works at SpaceX, works on stuff that he can't talk about, or at least couldn't talk about at the time. And we talked about the game and kind of his history of this. Obviously, anytime you talk epic, big space game, What's it going to get compared to, right? Of course, it's going to get compared to High Frontier. Now, I've heard that this is a huge dice fest, huge amount of randomness. I mean, to be, to be fair, High Frontier has a fair bit of that, right? Although you can mitigate a lot of those roles in the game, but I do not know in Stellar Horizons. And I've heard that it very much is not a space exploration game. It is, I mean, it does set, bill itself as a build-your-own-space-program game in which you lead one of seven Earth factions to explore and develop our solar system. So kind of an exploration game. But I've heard, don't go into it thinking about it that way. So I don't know. I mean, it is kind of funny that the listing on BGG has it as 60 minutes, as in one hour, to 1200 minutes so um that would be epic right lengthwise at least 
Is it a good game? I don't know. Is it going to be as good as High Frontier? My guess is no, but I'm curious to find out. So there you go. My number 39, Stellar Horizons. The next two games, I laugh because I feel like they're kind of almost the same game, but not at all. Okay, I realize that's cryptic as hell. Let me try that again. So let's see. The Supreme Commander is my number 38. Now, when the Supreme Commander came out, it is a GMT game. In fact, both of the, in fact, the rest of the games in this bucket are from GMT. This game came out in 2013, designed by Danny Holt. It sounded really, really interesting. It's a two to five player Eastern theater in World War II game, kind of a strategic level game which is kind of my wheelhouse when it comes to war games and it just looked really cool it sounded really interesting and then the release was a disaster there were misprints and there were just mistakes the rule book was really bad the board was all jacked up from what i remember just the release on this one i don't know that you can call it anything but a failure on gmt's part now they they corrected everything and they and they fixed it and this and that. But I feel like kind of the damage had been done on this one. So this one kind of got overlooked and passed and left uh, to die. Is it a good game? I don't know. I definitely want to play the the updated version of it to find out. However, both this and the next game, the next game would be my number 37, a game called Unconditional Surrender. Now, Unconditional Surrender came out a year later in 2014, also by GMT, designed by Salvatore Vasta. Also a strategic level Eastern theater uh, World War II game. So they're very similar, at least as far as setting, theme, and the whole nine yards. So that's kind of my wheelhouse, like I said. But Unconditional Surrender, definitely well thought of and well respected. So that's why I'm interested in it. However, the reason they are where they are in this list and why they're in this bucket is even though they are different games, clearly, I wonder how they're going to match up and compare to another game that I have played that I really enjoyed. 2018 game from GMT Games called Cataclysm, a Second World War. Now, Jess and I played this with uh with Joe, and I think maybe Jeff was in that game. Maybe it was just three of us. I remember us really enjoying our plays of this one. Designed by Scott Muldoon and William uh Turtoslavich. So my question is: does the Supreme Commander in Unconditional Surrender are they better than? a game that I already have and enjoy that covers the exact same strategic level ETO, Eastern Theater of Operations in World War II. Do they do a better job of doing that with than Cataclysm, a second world war? I don't know, but inevitably I'm going to be comparing them to that. So I still want to play them to find out. But honestly, that's three games that basically do the same thing. Who does it better? Thunderdome, put them in. Only three enter, one comes out. 
So we'll see how it goes. I don't know, but looking forward to that. So my 38, number 38, the Supreme Commander, and my 37, Unconditional Surrender. So this next one is also a World War II Eastern Theater of Operation game from GMT. So you might be asking yourself, self, why didn't you actually include this with the last two, which is the Supreme Commander and Unconditional Surrender? Well, the difference here is this is a block war game as opposed to a hex encounter war game. So two to three player block war game. I, I like where your head's at. I'm, I'm, I'm in for this. Okay. So why is it in this bucket though? Well, three player Eastern theater, World War II game, meaning Europe, right? Well, Triumph and Tragedy, another GMT game, has got to be considered on the, in there. That's obviously a whole lot newer than this one, which came out in 2003. But there's another game that is much higher on this list that I anticipate enjoying more than this one. So that's kind of why this is where it is. And I'll talk more about that other one when I get there. So there we go. Nonetheless, I am really looking forward to busting out Europe Engulfed. There is another, not really a sequel to this, but another in the series of this game called Your Asia Engulfed, which is for the Pacific Theater, which I have both of these. I just have not gotten either to the table. I've had these for a number of years. And there are apparently two editions as first edition, second edition of Europe Engulfed. And from everything I've said, the second edition is the one that you want to get your hands on, which is what I have. So we'll see how that goes. And when will I get it played? I don't know, but I am looking forward to it. I mean, it's on this list for a reason, right? So there you go. My number 36, Europe Engulfed, World War II European Theater Block Game. It's a lot of words. So Europe Engulfed, that works. So thus ends the second of four buckets. This next bucket only consists of two games. And these two games, both war games as well, are here because their reputations say they are amazing games. However, being perfectly honest, I don't think either game is going to be my cup of tea. However, they are universally accepted for those that do enjoy these type of games to be amazing. So I kind of feel obligated to play them, but also I, I do want to play them even if I don't think I'm going to be a good match for me, for them, or those games aren't going to be a good match for me. And we'll start off with number 35, Mark Herman's, well, a lot of people would say his magnum opus, his, his best game, Empire of the Sun. It's a hex encounter, Pacific theater, strategic level hex encounter war game it's 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 a cdg as well it's a card driven war game as well but i don't know i'm worried that it's going to be a little too much hex encounter for my liking from what i've learned that what it is that i i enjoy more strategic levels to where it's not a whole bunch of hexes and a whole lot of you know pushing 
chits around the board type thing, which I'll be honest, a lot of these games are not the ones that I have found that I really enjoy. However, Mark Herman, having become friends with him and, and sat down for numerous conversations, and he's convinced me that this is completely approachable. And he, he basically gave me a really good rules overview in under 15 minutes. So eventually I will get this played and I'm looking forward to it. Plus having Mark Herman at my disposal to be able to learn this from that's, you know, not terrible, <laughs> but I just don't know how much this game is going to be my cup of tea, but we'll see. Still looking forward to it. The weight rating on this 4.27 out of five, and that's war game level. So this is a big one. And I mean, I'm a little intimidated by this one. So, but again, having, being able to sit down and play it, hopefully with Mark, that will, that will certainly ease the transition on that. But yeah, looking forward to it. Nonetheless, number 35, Empire of the Sun. So this next one is all of World War II at a global scale. I'm a World War II fan. I'm also a World War I fan. Uh, as far as learning about the history, modeling it, conflict simulation, if you will. This next one is a giant, giant game. <sighs> Talk about intimidating. This next one is a big one. And that's World in Flames, uh, designed by Greg Pinder and Harry Rowland and published by Australian Design Group. Now, last lesson, I committed to doing the introductory scenario, the two-player introductory scenario, and then COVID happened. So that, that's still going to happen eventually. But yeah, this one, I talk about Hex Encounter. This is a giant all of World War II. Like, I don't have a table big enough to be able to play the entire game. I, I don't. I don't know many people that do. But the introductory scenario, that I can't handle. My, my table can't handle that one. But it's still a giant, giant game. And when people talk about Monster War games and the types of games that you would see at ConSim World Expo or uh, MonsterCon, which is a convention takes place in Arizona every year to where people play Monster War games. Some of these giant war games, stuff like Case Blue, uh, World in Flames, and others. Yeah, this is a big one. And even though they don't finish those games, usually, it's a, it's a type of game that you're going to find there. And I'm intimidated by it. I mean, on BGG, it says it, it takes two hours, up to 6,000 minutes to play it. Now, the two hours is the introductory scenario. That's the one that I'm going to be getting my feet wet with this. It is a Gloomhaven almost size box of enormous amount of content. It is incredibly detailed and massive. We'll see how it goes. I'm looking forward to it. So yeah, but I don't know how much this is going to be my cup of tea. This might be a, a, a bridge too far, so to speak, but I'm still looking forward to getting it to the table eventually. And that is my number 34, World in Flames. point forward 
everything else falls into kind of one bucket. These are just your standard games. I mean, it's still going to be a mix of Euros and and 18xx and war games and just the things don't that don't fit into any of those categories. But these are going to be your your typical, you know, single serving type games. So everything else here is pretty much just in its own bucket. All right. So without further ado, here we go. I did choose to number these and put these in a, a rough order. Now, at any given time, these could have a little bit of fluidity, but let's be honest, something that's down here isn't going to be, I, I'm just not as stoked to play as say my top 10, but that's still, I'm still looking forward to playing these games. So without further ado, my number 33, Strike of the Eagle, another black war game, uh, that this one focuses on uh, the Polish-Soviet War from 1919-1920, designed by Brian Bennett, Uwe Eichert, and uh, Robert Zak, and published by Academy Games. Now, this one's been out there for a while. It, it came out in 2011. Black War Games, those very much are my jam. This is a uh, two-to-four player game. But from everything I've heard, most people... I'm pretty sure play this as a two-player game. I guess theoretically you could play it as a four-player uh, to where it's essentially two on one side, two on the other. But really, I think this is I think this is really a, a two-player block war game that looks relatively approachable and looks really interesting. And that is one literal heavy box. I I've had this for what feels like forever. It's just one that hasn't made it to the table yet. So yeah, Strike of the Eagle, my number 33. Switching gears to off the beaten path a little and a lighter Euro, uh, my number 32 is The Walled City, Londonderry and Borderlands. And this is designed by Daryl Andrews and Stefan Sauer, published by Mercury Games. This is also uh, a little bit older, 2014 release. I've heard a lot of good things about The Walled City, as in whenever it gets mentioned, I feel like the whether it's my local group or whenever it's mentioned, like whenever we would go to conventions, you know, when those things actually happened, you'd mention somebody mentioned The Walled City or whatever, and you, you'd kind of look around and people just kind of shake their head like and say, yeah, good game. I enjoyed that. It's, it, the ratings aren't super high on BGG. But I feel like this one kind of got overlooked a little, and it's not one that I ever hear anybody talk about outside of the occasional mention here and there. Uh, card drafting, area majority game uh, that uh, plays two to four, but uh, area majority, probably three or four player game. It just sounds like an interesting area majority area control game that isn't totally bloodthirsty like a uh, Tammany Hall uh, type area control game or El Grande or whatever. But yeah, it's it's one that I've had for a number of years that I would like to get off my shelf of opportunity and, and play. Um, plus, I know Daryl Andrews, really nice guy. And I, I, I just want to play this damn game. So there you go. My number 32, The Walled City. All right, next up. My number 31 is a game that I do not own, and that is 
South African Railroads, designed by John Bohr, published by Winsome Games. It originally came out in 2011, which, let me translate that for you guys. If you don't own it, you're not getting it. It is way, way out of print. Now, you might be asking yourself here, uh, doesn't this break one of the rules that you said at the beginning, that if it's, if you don't own it, it has to be reasonably easy to uh, obtain. Yes. However, I have it on good authority that this is going to be coming out sooner rather than later. I'm not at liberty to say more than that, but and please don't go hounding random publishers. You may or may not know who this is coming from. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. So why am I interested in South African Railroad specifically? Because God knows there have been a plethora of different winsome games out there. Okay, here, in a nutshell, let me sum it up this way. This game has been categorized as unforgiving or brutal, and I've heard nothing but positive things about South African railroads. Okay, I'm in. Sign me up. Because, let's face it, if you tend to like the types of games that I and our game groups like, then you got to have a little bit of masochist in you. And South African Railroad sounds like uh, that cup of tea for me. So, yes, please. Thank you, sir. May I have another? So, there you go. My number 31, South African Railroads. Just saying, throw it out on your, you know, keep an eye out on this one. Because otherwise, there's like a copy in the BGG marketplace for 350 bucks. I ain't paying that. You shouldn't either. It's going to be seeing the light of day again. And I will not say more than that on that. Moving on to number 30, Tesla versus Edison, War of Currents, designed by Dirk Niemeyer and published by Artana Games. Does Artana exist anymore? I know Genius Games bought them. I don't... Yeah, I don't know how that works. Anyway, Tesla versus Edison, War of Currents, I've heard, is actually not good. So you might be asking yourself, why the hell is it on your list then? Well, I've heard it's actually a good game when you include the Powering Up expansion. So if you play Tesla versus Edison and you include the Powering Up expansion, it becomes a pretty damn good game. That's everything that I've heard about it. I want to play it. Plus the, the, the stock market becomes interesting in this game. Uh, just commodity spe speculation, uh, plus the, the theme of it, right? Route building economic worker placement game. Uh, focused on invention in the industry in the roaring 1880s. That's the base game. The expansion, however, takes it to a whole new level by infusing exciting new systems. I uh, seriously, could you could you could you expand a little bit on it than that? Uh, apparently, it includes a solo version in the expansion as well. But from what I've heard, it basically fixes the base game. I've yet to play it, but I've heard don't play Tesla versus Edison without the expansion. So this would be the second and last game in which the expansion is all but, uh, all but mandatory to be able to enjoy the entire experience. So Tesla versus Edison with the powering up expansion would be my number 30. 
Number 29 has what I would say is probably the most interesting theme of any game that is on this list. And the overview that I was given from the publisher a couple years ago at Essen made this sound really interesting. And the artwork is adorable and just great. However, main board on this game is just so confusing and cluttered that it makes it hard to look past in my case, or at least for me. And the game I'm talking about, my number 29, is Cerebria, The Inside World, designed by Richard Amon and Victor Peter, which if you know those two names, then you know that we're talking Mind Clash games. I've enjoyed everything that I have played from Mind Clash games. And Cerebria, just the theme alone, that basically it's all about emotions, and how the, the opposing two sides of human nature, bliss and gloom, if you will, struggle to control and shape the inside world, the metaphorical representation of an evolving personality. Oh, hell yes. Sign me up. When I heard about this, I was like, uh, yeah. But the... As adorable as the artwork is, you look at the main board and it just, ooh, there's a lot going on there. Um, and I wonder if the iconography is super clear and is it just uh, form over function? I don't know. But then again, if you look at a game like Trickerian that I absolutely love. It's got a lot going on there, too. So this very well could be the case with Cerebria. It's just, it's given me pause in the, in the past, and nobody is, it, within our game group has really been clamoring about this. And the funny thing is, is it's got a ton of ratings on BGG, but nobody seems to really talk much about Cerebria, if it seems like. It feels like it gets overlooked compared to its more popular brethren, Tricurian, and another game that we're going to talk about soon. But yeah, definitely on my to playlist and one that I'm itching to get to the table. So Cerebria, the inside world. And just slightly ahead of that one, at number 28, is another one that I haven't played because I heard it's a really good game. Also from Mind Clash Games, but the theme really just doesn't grab me at all. And that's Anachrony. Designed by David Turtsey, as well as uh, Richard Amon and Victor Peter, which again, Mind Clash Games. I have heard that this is getting a new something or other. Uh, as far as I know the solo play, has a new version coming out, I think is what it is. There might be a new expansion coming for it as well. I don't want to misspeak on this, but the, yeah, Anachrony Classic Expansion Pack uh, and Fractures of Time, I think, right? I'm not making that up. That's still to come, I believe, right? Anyway, uh, so the new version of the solo bot 
when I sat down in my most recent interview with David Turtsey, he he had mentioned uh, that he was doing that. I, I, I mean, I'm all about some solo play of David's games. The, the time traveling and everything with Anachrony just never really grabbed me. And the, the plastic minis just, eh, again, didn't really grab me at the time. Because this originally came out three years ago, 2017. Just, eh. And I'll be honest, I really could care less about the plastic minis to this day. But a lot of people are like, hey, you really should play this. I think you'd enjoy it. So there you go. So I feel like I need to. Plus, with the uh, the new solo version coming out in the whole nine yards, Anachrony, my number 28, it's on here. It belongs on here. I, I need to get this one played. And I feel like when I was talking about Cerebria a minute ago, uh, Tricarian and Anachrony kind of suck all the air out of the room for Cerebria. And I feel like it's kind of like the, the forgotten child out of all of them. I'm not saying it's like, I don't know. I haven't played them yet. So we'll see how it goes. But yeah, 28, 29, Anachrony and Cerebria. And now for something a little bit different. My number 27 is a game that you probably have not played. Yes, I know there is a small subset of you guys that will be able to say you've played this. But this is Swedish Parliament 2014. Designed by Harold Inoxen and published by Monday Nye, I think is how you say it. So in, I can't help but think when I see Swedish Parliament 2014 and you hear that, can't help but immediately think of Demacher because that's German politics, right? Now. Is this going to be as good as Diemacher? No chance. Uh, let's just throw it out there. I know. However, Swedish Parliament 2014, you play as one of eight Swedish parties and compete to become the most influential party after the 2014 Parliament elections. Okay. I mean, just based on, I never would have thought I would have enjoyed German politics, yet Diemacher is one of my all-time favorite games. Okay. So back in 2014, I got a copy of Swedish Parliament. 2014. It's 2020. I still haven't played it. I've seen it played at HeavyCon. I've seen my copy played at I, I've yet to play it. Is it any good? I don't know. But I want to play it. Now, it does have some stuff in here that is really ugly. And I don't just mean artwork-wise, just like some of the political parties that are represented in this game have some really deplorable and repulsive stances on things that are not okay. Right. And, and, and not they just no. However, this is modeling the election in 2014. So I, and I'm going to assume that these political parties are pretty true to form. So I imagine there are definitely some, things around the world that uh different political parties out there that have some reprehensible stuff anyway moving on you get the idea just heads up on that stuff but i don't know if it's any good we'll see uh i know there's a fair bit of randomness in this uh but so does democracy i don't know we'll see it's a two-hour 
political Swedish Parliament 2014. We'll see how it goes. I, I, it's on my short list to get played, so we'll see. And by short list, I mean 42 games. That's my number 27, Swedish Parliament 2014. This next one, number 26, is a game that I don't even know how many people's radar this ever hit, much less went under the radar. I think it just showed up and disappeared before it really showed up. And that's Epoch Early Inventors. Uh, designed by Martin F. and published by Rio Grande Games. Came out in 2018. And the reason for that, well, I mean, back then, Rio Grande, like, they, they just never announced their games. Just they showed up and they either picked up traction or they didn't. Nowadays, I mean, hi, we've partnered up with Rio Grande, so there's that. But this one got completely missed. Is it any good? Well, I've heard some really, really good things about this game. However, I've also read some less flattering things. So basically, the gist of this is a good, complex engine building resource conversion puzzle. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm in. I dig that. Okay. However, I've also heard that, uh, you know, I've heard that there's an enjoyable game in here somewhere, but it forces you to look for it. Needed development, uh, fiddly as hell, and some of the you know uh, color choices made in this game may impact your ability to not fight against the game and and just being able to the rules getting out of the way as well as the production. So I don't know. There's a, there's a review or not a review, but a comment, you know, on BGG written about this that I, I kind of got a kick out of. I'm going to only take parts of this here. It says, if you love practical history, this can be a fun and interesting game. The setup is tedious, but making a box organizer is a must to expedite it. Setup is slow, uh, but you're developing your inventions and, and traveling takes time. I need to be a hundred percent awake to play this well. Okay. I am, I have heard those that enjoy this really enjoy this game. So we'll see. I don't know. But it's on my short list of games that it looks really interesting. I mean, if you didn't know any better, it would almost like, look like Takanako with the hexes out there, uh, as well as the, the tall pieces kind of, if you were to just glance, kind of look like bamboo. It has nothing to do with that. I'm just saying at a glance, that's what it reminds me of. But it looks interesting. So I definitely want to get this one played. Epoch, Early Inventors, my number 26. Number 25, definitely not a game that I ever would have thought I would be interested in playing. But more and more, as I get more and more into playing and enjoying sol solitaire games or solo games, I keep seeing The Seventh Continent in the library. And I'm like, I kind of want to play that. It's a choose-your-own-adventure game, kind of. And it's a co-op, which I'm okay with. Just play it solo, <laughs> right? And choose-your-own-adventures, I mean, we all grew up with them. I don't know, and again, I, I, I haven't delved too deep into this. I don't know if uh, you can replay it. I mean, it's not a legacy game. I understand that. But, like, would you ruin 
the experience if you play it and then trying to go back through it like can you will that ruin the experience i don't know is it a one time through type thing but i i've heard some really cool stuff and i've heard a lot of people that enjoy solo solo games really enjoy this game and i mean it's wildly popular right i mean it's i don't know it's in top 50 on bgg i mean which all that tells me is it's popular doesn't mean it's good but i'm i'm i've heard good things about it choose your own adventure yeah seventh continent i know they they just had a kickstarter for like i don't know if it's a sequel or an expansion or anything like that because this isn't my wheelhouse normally but it sounds really kind of interesting so my number 25 seventh continent by the way if you google it uh it's the number seven all right there you go but i imagine you guys probably know about this one Moving on to number 24, another game I do not own, but uh, probably, well, I'm very curious to see what All Aboard Games does with their review policy. So we'll see whether or not uh, we get a copy of this. I know people who have copies of this as well. That's 18 Chesapeake, designed by Scott Peterson of All Aboard Games. Uh, supposed to be a really good entry point into the 18xx family of games. So. We'll see. Moving on to number 23, Hannibal and Hamilcar. This is kind of a new version, a 20th anniversary edition, kind of, of the original Hannibal, Rome versus Carthage. Now, I never, I have Hannibal, Rome versus Carthage. Never played it, though, so that's how this can end up on the list. So Hannibal and Hamilcar, designed by Mark Simonich. Uh, this version of the game, uh, does, or uh, published by Phalanx Games. The original Hannibal uh, won, uh, won awards back in the day, and it's top 15 in the war game, again, as far as popularity. But I, I tend to trust the war game BGG rankings a little bit more than the regular ones. But nonetheless, literally, I've heard nothing positive or nothing but positives about uh, Hannibal, Rome versus Carthage. Now, Hannibal and Hamilcar. Hamilcar was the expansion that was never came out, that everybody always wanted, but never came out for Hannibal. And this now includes that. Now, it streamlined some things. Uh, so I, I've heard nothing but positives. There are some people out there and some discussion about the minis that came in this game and whether or not they should have just been standees. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The game itself, I've heard nothing but positives. Two-player CDG that's set in, you know, uh, first and second Punic War. Um, that that that's my jam. So sign me up, yes, please. As soon as I can get people back over to HCHQ, I want it. This is definitely going to be on the uh, short list of games to play. Well, obviously everything here is on it, but you get the idea. I'm excited to play uh, Hannibal and Hamilcar. Uh, Forty-minute to two-hundred-minute playtime. So, you know, you're talking, uh, you know, four hours at most or so. But again, everything I've heard about this game, positive. So definitely, definitely want to play it. Speaking of two-player war games, the next one, number 22, is quite possibly the best game set in World War I, Pass of Glory. Designed by Ted Racier and published by GMT Games. Eric Brocious. I didn't know this, but Eric, this is one of Eric Brocious's favorite games. Uh, so, yeah, 
I, I have somebody to learn from as well. And this is a game that I, ever since I listened to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History series on World War One, I, I had zero interest in World War One up until listening to that series of podcasts. Then once I heard that, I was like, okay, I, I need to get past the glory. And looks amazing, sounds amazing, and it's collected dust. It originally came out in 1999. I've not, I've had mine since 2017 or so, and just haven't gotten it played. Two-player World War One CDG. Yep, love it. In theory, just want to get it played. So there you go. My number 22, Pass the Glory. And while we're on two-player CDGs from GMT. Uh, why not Why not talk about another Mark Herman game that I need to play? Washington's War, designed by Mark Herman, published by GMT. Came out in 2010. Another top 50 war game. I just need to get these played. I know another CDG that, uh, yes, just just yes. We uh, Originally, uh, Mark design we the people and then washington's war was built upon that and i just again it's a 90 minute two-player war game on the american uh, revolution almost said american civil war american revolution washington's war yeah i'm in just haven't played it sorry mark if you hear this we'll get it played i promise <laughs> Welcome to the top 20, y'all. So here we go. Number 20. This one's one that you probably haven't heard of, or if you've heard of it, you probably only did so from watching my Name the Game most recently, little thing that I did on YouTube. And that is Forwarder of Xanadu, designed by Kuro and published by Manifest Destiny. Man, I don't even know how to describe this thing. Uh, Pick up and deliver game from what I gather about it. The artwork is very anime slash manga. I don't exactly know the difference between those two things, but when I say that, it should immediately come to mind the type of uh, artwork that is in this game. Japanese designer, and from what I understand of it, it kind of looks like a bit Yokohama ish. But worker placement, pick up and deliver, order fulfillment, recipe fulfillment type game. Yeah. All right. Cool. So originally came out 2018. I actually have an extra copy of this that when I do a live stream of it, if I do a live stream of it, I'll probably give away a copy of this one because this one is uh, pretty obscure. Not a lot of, not a lot of coverage <laughs> on this one out there. And uh, not a lot of copies available of this. I, I, I picked it up uh, in 2018 at Essen, and it was really high on my anticipation list. But then life happens, and it just, it just kind of fell off the radar a bit and got lost in the shuffle. So I definitely, this is, I mean, if it's on, I, I feel like all I'm doing is repeating, oh, it's on my short list. Obviously it is if it's on this list, so I can stop saying that. But Really want to play it. Those that have seem to enjoy it. So we'll see how it goes. Forwarder of Xanadu. 
uh, that's got to be the most unique name on this list, I would say, right? Yeah, I think so. Number 19 is a game from last year that it's unlike anything else that I've encountered. Uh, I obviously haven't played it yet. I, I wanted to play it, and then uh, and then COVID happened. Probably, it says it plays three to five players, probably best with five from everything I'm hearing. The King's Dilemma from Horrible Guild. Interactive narrative experience with legacy elements. What? Okay. So this, let me, let me read the description here. And I, I'm, I imagine a lot of y'all have heard about this one yet so far, or have heard, I should say. The King's Dilemma, interactive narrative experience with legacy elements featuring several branching storylines leading to many possible finales and an evolving deck of event cards at its core. Players represent the various houses leading the government of the kingdom, kingdom of Ankis. You draw one card from the, the Dilemma deck each round and experience the game story as it unfolds. Each card poses a problem that the council has to resolve on the king's behalf. As members of the king's inner circle, your decisions determine how the story proceeds and the fate of the kingdom. Each event happens only once. You discuss and bargain with the other players, and then finally make your choice determining the outcome, progressing the game's story, and possibly unlocking more events. You have to keep the kingdom going while also seeking an advantage for your own house. This power struggle may lead the kingdom into war famine, or riot, or it could generate wealth and well-being. This will depend on your choices. The thing is, each decision has consequences. What is good for the kingdom as a whole may be bad for your family. Will you act for the greater good, or will you think only of yourself? Hell yes! The only reason this game is on this list and hasn't already been played is because by the time we were going to get it played, COVID hit, and yeah. Sign me up, man. You're telling me between me, like Jess, Shrey, that traitorous bastard, uh, Ken, and Greg? Oh, hell yeah. Sign me up. Now I'm looking at this and I'm like, why the hell is this at 19? Why isn't this higher? After reading that, eh, you get the idea. King's Dilemma from Horrible Guild. Now, we will stream this game. You might be asking yourself, self, how the hell are you going to stream this and not ruin it for everybody? Well, big kudos to Horrible Guild on this one. They actually had, when we picked up a review copy of this at Essen last year, they had what is basically a reviewer's single serving story of it to where this didn't come in the game. So I'm not ruining anything in the game if we actually do that. So that'd be cool. So yeah, looking forward to busting that out and, and, and doing that, uh, on stream, but also, uh, yeah, it should be a good time. I'm just, this is unlike any other game that I will have encountered. And so it, it sounds unique and yeah yes please 
So that's my number 19, King's Dilemma. My number 18 is a game that there are two different games under the same name. Make sure you choose the right one. Founding Fathers, the one that I'm talking about, came out in 2007, designed by Rick Helly. And the only way, to the best of my knowledge, that you can actually get this game is it's a print-on-demand from the Game Crafter. There is another version, or mm, no, there is a separate game with the same name from Jolly Roger Games that, eh, I have that too, but the one that is on this list is the one from the Game Crafter. It's a three to six player, uh, basically political negotiation game. Politics year to year in the early American Republic. Play begins with George Washington as president, Vice President John Adams. Each player controls several statesmen as well as others who will appear up through the arrival of Abraham Lincoln. Together, the players try to solve the issues faced by the young republic. Wars, debt, financial panics, and the growth of the Union, North and South divide, and more. Every four years, the most popular politicians from each party square off to see who will become the next president. Somewhat similar to the Republic of Rome, another game that sits on my shelf of opportunity, but with many modifications to suit the topic, including a completely different way of resolving elections and a more nuanced treatment of issue cards. If diplomacy is not your cup of tea, you actually, there's a variant in the box, apparently. All in all, I have heard, mostly from people playing this at HeavyCon, that this is pretty excellent. So, yeah. I'm in, if I can find the, the folks to play it with, and, you know, I can have people over. Founding Fathers, the one from the Game Crafter. Published in 2007. My number 18. My number 17 is brought to you by Mark Herman. Yes, I realize this is becoming the Mark Herman anticipation list. I get it. Or shelf of opportunity. I'm sorry, Mark. There are a lot. You, you, you design a lot of games. I'm behind. Forgive me. Number, <laughs> number 17, though, also published by GMT. Pericles, the Peloponnesian Wars, kind of a four-player Churchill, kind of, loosely, maybe, can say that. Now, that's not to say that Pericles is Churchill. I mean, first off, four players versus uh, uh, three-player uh, asymmetric game. But uh, yeah, um, just the, the whole political side versus the military side of things. But seriously, uh, Peloponnesian War, um, time period. Uh, again, ancients. This is so in my wheelhouse. So, yeah. But completely different animal than the Peloponnesian War that Mark Herman also designed. Just happens to be on the subject that he has his degree in. Okay, makes sense. But yeah, for me, uh, Pericles, my number 17 and as much as I'm talking, oh, this list presented by Mark Herman, I, I legitimately could say that GMT figures prominently within this list as well. And this next one is, well, 
GMT. This is a game I don't own, but I actually have access to, and I'm going to have a copy of it sooner rather than later. It's a game that came out last year, late last year, that haven't played, and this is Nevsky, Teutons and Ruse in Collision. 1240 to 1242. Designed by Volko Runke, published by GMT Games. Volko Runke, he of the coin series of games fame. So this one at first flew under the radar for me. Uh, the clash between the Latin Teutonic and Orthodox Russian powers along the Baltic frontier in mid-13th century. Ooh, sign me up. Nope, not really a period of history that I am at all even a tiny bit familiar with. However, Volko Runke, oh, GMT, mm, duh. And I've heard, so it's a, it's a solo or a two-player game. Everything that I've heard so far has been, yeah, play this two-player. And that's why I've kind of stepped aside from not playing the solo yet. Looking forward to getting this played, getting a copy of it. I've heard that this is a bit of an investment game, meaning the learning curve in this one is there. It exists. There is a learning curve, and it's it's not the easiest to get into. That doesn't dissuade me, if anything. I, want, I wear it like a badge of honor. I want to be able to get into it, and I want to check it out. So Nevsky, Teutons. And Ruse in Collision, 1240-1242. Just Google Nevsky. My number 16. My number 15 is what I've heard described as the most austere 18xx game in existence. And that's 18 Ireland, designed by Ian Scrivens. And uh, originally uh, uh, web-published, but available, I guess, from All Aboard Games. Uh, Ireland was a poor country, but there's no lack of enthusiasm for railways among investors. Up to 13 five-share companies start in random sequence. Some of these companies become successful. Others, as a result of underinvestment, isolation, or poor timing, will struggle to survive. All is not lost for the strugglers, however. A unique shareholder voting mechanism allows companies to merge into 10-share companies, sometimes against their director's wishes, with their more or less successful neighbors. I've heard a lot of really, really good things about this. And most, I would say, uh, 18xx games have a set bank, right, that is usually, say, 9,000 or more in the bank. 18 Ireland starts with, or the bank is 4,000. <laughs> so, like I said, really austere. And I've heard nothing but positives, really, about 18 Ireland. I just would like to, I don't own a copy. I would like to get a copy eventually and, uh, and get this one to the table. So, good thing I happen to know a whole lot of people that own a whole lot of 18xx games. So, yeah, 18 Ireland. My number 15. My number 14, I had to Google how to pronounce because it's not written in English. Taste the absurd reality of communist economics by queuing at shops without goods. Oh, hell yeah. Sign me up. That sounds good. Koleka, uh, designed by Carol 
Madej, and published by IPN. Well, I'm not even going to try and pronounce that it it's IPN. Uh, so get in a queue with your family in front of a store and experience a rush of genuine emotions. The board game Koleka, a.k.a. that's Polish for Q, tells a story of everyday life in Poland at the tail end of the communist era. The player's task appears to be simple. They have to send their family members out to various stores on the game board to buy all the items on their shopping list. Problem is, however, the shelves in the five neighborhoods' stores are empty. The players line up their pawns in front of the shops without knowing which shop will have a delivery. Tension mounts as the product delivery cards are uncovered, and it turns out that there will be enough product cards only for the lucky few standing closest to the door of a store. It's funny hearing this. The other thing that comes to mind on this is trying to pre-order electronics in 2020. I digress. Since everyone wants to be first, the queue starts to push up against the door. To get ahead, the people in the queue use a range of queuing cards, such as mother carrying small child, this is not your place, sir, or under-the-counter goods, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But they have to watch out for closed for stock uh, taking, delivery error, and for the black pawns, the speculators standing in the queue. Only those players who make the best use of their queuing cards in their hand will come home with full shopping bags. Now, if, if I remember correctly, this actually was published by the Polish government, I believe. Yes, I am correct. So there was apparently an AP story about this game 10 years ago. That came out. Uh, Poland's state-run National Remembrance Institute has created or created the game called Koleka, which means Q. Now, I've heard that it's not the best game out there, but the theme in this, come on, and it's it's more or less kind of a not a party game, <laughs> pun intended intended there with the communist party line there but i've heard that it's best five players and this honest to god was legitimately one of the first games we were going to be playing uh as soon as the as soon as the, the pandemic hit so here it is it's a game that i have wanted to play forever and just have never been able to find a way to make it hit the table this is going to be on the short list when people get here Koleka, K-O-L-E-J-K-A, my number 14. Number 13, a game from Spielworks that came and went and pretty much stayed gone that I was really, really interested in playing. And the longer it waited, the more feedback that I heard from those that have played it. There are some folks that really enjoy it, and there's a lot of folks that really don't. That's The Sands of Time, designed by Jeff Warrender and published, as I mentioned, by Spielworks. I've heard the rule book's terrible. The graphic design didn't really help itself. And there are a lot of things that are very unintuitive. And you 
constantly are having to refer to the player aid and it just, it kind of breaks up the flow of the game. That said, those that like this really like this game and are willing to kind of fight through the flaws of this, uh, that the game plays long, but if, if it clicks, it clicks, right? It's one of those to where if you like it, you're really going to like it. And if you don't, you're really not going to like this one. Well, I want to find out where I fall in that. So Sansa Time, number 13 on the list. Number 12 is kind of a sequel to the original, and I haven't played the original either, which you can make a case could be on this list, but this is the more approachable of the two. So I would recommend people try this one, and if you like this, then work your way backwards. What I'm talking about is, yup, another game by GMT. This one designed by Joel Toppin, Comancheria, The Rise and Fall of the Comanche Empire. Came out 2016, and it builds upon uh, the original game in the series, which is Navajo Wars, which came out in 2013. Now, I'll be honest, Navajo Wars, I think, is a little bit more interesting to me. Maybe I think I feel like I know a little bit more about the Navajo than the Comanche, so maybe that's why that is. And it could be because I've heard about Navajo Wars uh, from like Travis Hill and a bunch of other people that really like this game. But I've heard that can be a little daunting to get into. And Comancheria kind of takes what Joel learned in designing Navajo Wars and kind of lowered the learning curve a little bit, softened it with Comancheria. Didn't make it easy, but now I should also point out both of these games are solo, which the more I play solo games, the more I'm into these. So yeah, Comancheria. Uh, thinking about this, I would say this is probably top four, top five game that I want to get played solitaire. Uh, so needless to say, there's going to be more of those coming up here very, very soon. So Comancheria, my number 12 on the list. And the last one that barely missed the top 10 is another game that I raved about being excited about and then just never got the damn thing to the table. I'm the worst about that, let me tell you. This is another game from Compass Games designed by Kirk Ullman called The Lamps Are Going Out. This is a two to four player, but apparently can be soloed, but two to four player game about World War I. There are two alliances, Central Powers and a Triple Entente, uh, each divided into two factions. The Central Power players control Germany and the Central Allies, Austria-Hungary, Turkey, and Bulgaria factions, while the Triple Entente player has the Western Allies, Great Britain, Belgium, France, and Italy, and, West, or, and Eastern Allies, U.S., Russia, Serbia, Romania, and the U.S. factions. Originally came out 2016, and I've heard good things about it. Got a copy, just never hit the table. Has a reasonable playtime, three to four hours to me, or at least that's reasonable to me. And it just looks really interesting. So yeah, lamps are going out. My number 11. So 
as we approach the top 10, what I've noticed from this is there's a really interesting mix of stuff in this. There's war games, there's train games, there's fantasy games, there's historical games, there's civ game. Just, I mean, it ran, runs the gamut here, right? It's all right. Here we go. Number 10, two-player block war game designed by Kurt Keckley and published by, you guessed it, GMT. Fields of Despair, France, 1914 to 1918. So, two-player block war game about World War One. Oh, hell yes. One of the most compelling things about this game is usually in a block war game, the, it, it maintains fog of war, right? Because only you can see the, the size of your forces, right? Now, obviously... A block represents some mix or, or some, or it represents some, uh, some size force. Usually a block is one unit or one group of units or something along the lines of that. So if you see somebody putting a whole bunch of blocks in one area, holy cow, that's going to be a really big force. Whereas if it's only a block or two, eh, it's probably, you know, a, a smaller force that you don't know what that force is consists of, but you get a ballpark idea as far as the, the, the strength of that. However, in Fields of Despair, you can actually have a really large force, but only have a very small number of blocks, one or two blocks. So it can be really deceptive in that regard. And I don't know exactly how that works, but I'm really, really interested to find out because if you look at any of the other block war games that I've played, so whether it's the Columbia games series of games like uh, Richard the third, Julius Caesar, uh, hammer of the Scots, all of those, all of those are, they're identical blocks in a sense that they're all about the same strength. So if you see three blocks, you know, roughly this, you might not know exactly the strength of it, but you got a pretty good idea. Here, that's not the case. Factor in World War I and making what normally is a pretty boring kind of trench warfare, very static uh, front, making that compelling? Oh, yeah. Sign me up. So I blame Dan Carlin for this one as well. So, yeah, Fields of Despair, my number 10. Moving on to Fantasy Trains. My number nine is a game that I'd never heard about until a bunch of patrons were like, hey, you should check out this game. And I was like, Parquet? Designed by Trey Chambers, published by Level 99 Games. Now, Level 99 has made a number of games that I wouldn't have expected that I enjoyed that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, Millennium Blades, Argent the Consortium, and now we have Imperial. Spells and Steam. Now, Imperial is spelled a little weird. E-M-P-Y-R-E-A-L. So, <laughs> it's, it's a train game for non-train gamers. How's that? All right. Imperial Spells and Steam. 
Technomancers use mana to build rails, and the amount of mana crystals required to cast the spell varies by terrain and by the potency of the spell. Mana crystals must recharge after being used, so your choice of when and where to use each spell will be critical to determine the efficiency of your construction engine. It sounds like a pretty interesting Euro train game with a fantasy theme. Okay. Yeah. So Age of Steam-ish, maybe? Kind of? I don't know. But I'm interested to find out. It's a huge hex board. Okay. Very colorful because fantasy, right? But hey, I've heard good things. I'm excited to try it. Trains, hexes, network building. Okay, I'm in. My number, what was that? Nine, Imperial Spells and Steam. Number eight is the granddaddy of all financial side of 18xx games. I've had my copy sitting unplayed for what feels like forever. 1817, designed by Craig Bartell and Tim Flowers and published by originally Deep Thought Games and now All Aboard Games. This is a big one. Sophisticated financial mechanics that simulate the laissez-faire capitalism of early America. Basically, uh, the shorting of companies, it's just, if you were into the financial uh, tomfoolery that you may find in an 18xx game, 1817 is pretty much the game as from everything I've been told. I just have never gotten this one to the table. Part of it is this for most people, this is going to be a six to 10 hour game. Now, the more experienced you are with it, the shorter you get that playtime down. I understand. If you enjoy the more route building side of things, this is definitely not going to be your cup of tea. From everything I understand, that is more or less the route side of this game. And it's all about the financial machinations. Now, as 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 much as I hear 1817 being the, you know, the the pinnacle of financial side of 18xx games. It's expansion, or I guess kind of a like a a newer version, I guess, of 1817 is a game called 18 USA, which basically takes 1817 and then makes uh it a little bit more variable. Um, and it's the the route building and everything else is far less scripted than it is in 1817. Now, this is all hearsay and this is all stuff that I've read and heard, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like I just need to get 1817 played. Duh. So yeah, 1817, my number eight. Got to get this one to the table. Number seven is up. It's a game from 2012 that I actually alluded to way back when we were talking about number 36, Europe Engulfed, which is a World War II Eastern uh, Theater of Operation two-player block war game. And I said, I've heard really good things about it. 
but I wonder if it's going to be as good as a game that's higher on the list. We have reached the game that is higher on this list, and that is number seven, Blocks in the East. And for all intents and purposes, this could kind of sub in for the blocks in the dot, dot, dot. And the reason I say that is because Blocks in the East is a series of games, well, the Blocks in the, Blocks in the East, Blocks in the West, Blocks in Africa, stuff like that. It is a game system designed by Emmanuel Santa, uh, Sant'Andrea and published by his company, which is Vento Nuovo Games. This takes logistics to a pretty big level and, and mixes that with a World War II block war game. All this sounds really, really interesting and really compelling. And I've wanted to play this for as long as I've been in this hobby. And I just have never made the time to get this played. And that is a shame. I really, really, really want to get this one to the table. So, block war game. Apparently it plays one to four players. But for everything that I've known about this game, it's a two-player game. Uh, apparently you can play it solo, but that just seems weird to me with it being a block war game. So probably to get the best feel for this, two-player block war game, Eastern Theater, World War II, blocks into East. Number six is a game from 2019 that was, I think, if not my most anticipated game uh, at Essen, it was definitely very, very high on my list. And that is Era of Tribes, designed by Arne Lorenz and published by Black Beacon Games, which I believe is his company. Uh, civilization worker placement strategy game. One to four players. Okay. All right. So I have heard that it's probably best with four players. And those that like it, really like it. Those that don't basically say the rule book sucks. It's an overwrought mess. And I think, I think my favorite quote of this game is too long, badly written rules, thousands of nuances, unbalanced race powers, and Euro game ears sticking out at every corner. Yeah, sign me up. That sounds good, except for the, you know, crappy rule book. So civilization, worker placement. And it takes place, basically, you're building up a sieve from Neolithic time period up to the Middle Ages. Yeah. Uh, this sounds delicious. Is it worth getting into? I sure as hell hope so. To have it this high on my list, this better not suck. Again, damn you COVID getting in the way of already having played this. But yeah, Era of Tribes, this thing caught my eye. Uh, just from the map and the tech tree that is over on the left side of the, of the board itself. But yeah, I, I, yes, I high on the list. Air of tribes, definitely, definitely on there. Number five is a game that I do not own, but probably will by the end of the month. It's a game that. I think it was well said that it suffers from the name of the game. And that's Imperial Struggle. 
Designed by Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews, they of Twilight Struggle fame, published by GMT Games. Now, as it was pointed out to me, this probably started out a lot closer to Twilight Struggle than where it ended up, and they didn't change the name of the game. So inevitably, when you have Imperial Struggle versus Twilight Struggle as far as a name, and you have the same designers, inevitably these two games are going to be compared to one another. It's just natural what's going to happen. But from what I'm hearing, don't. Don't look at it as a successor to Twilight Struggle. Think of it as its own animal and just come into it without that preconceived notion. And the next bad thing I hear about Imperial Struggle, other than, oh, it's not Twilight Struggle, will be the first two-player CDG. Yup. Chomping at the bit. I'm sorry champion at the bit to get this one played well i need a copy but that's going to be rectified soon enough imperial struggle my number four designed by jeff engelstein and mark herman and published by gmt games versailles 1919 supposedly it plays solo up through four players and I've heard people enjoying it solo i've heard people enjoying it two player i've heard people enjoying it at four player Ah, uh, that sounds really good in my book. You sit in a conference room as one of the big four trying to figure out the Versailles Treaty. And everything about this game sounds like it's right up my alley. And reading from the, the description, Versailles 1990 introduces a new card bidding mechanism in which you can use your influence to settle issues aligned with your agenda while keeping domestic constituents in support of your actions. You need to balance the need to demobilize your military forces while simultaneously keeping re regional unrest under control. All of these decisions are set against the backdrop of regional crises and uprisings. The player who writes more of the treaty prevails in this contest of wills and national agenda. Can you save the world from the rise of nationalism? Can you make a better world while satisfying your domestic electorate? Play Versailles 1919 and relive making the flawed peace that was the Treaty of Versailles, which eventually led into World War II, right? Yeah, hell yeah. I don't own this yet, but again, I will by the end of the month. Uh, I'll probably play this solo before I play it multiplayer, but I cannot wait to get Versailles 1919 to the table. I've been watching on Twitter and the people that I'm seeing playing it are really seem to be digging this game. Yeah, sign me up. Number three is an older game that I've had, well, since the original, I guess. And that's A Study in Emerald, designed by Martin Wallace and published by Tree Frog Games. Now, the version of the game that I'm interested in playing, I own them both, is the first edition. Everything I've heard, basically, the second edition just rips out the guts of the first edition. And yeah, I have it, but I want to play the first edition. Two to five player, but everything I've read, it's probably best as a five player game. Studying Emerald is a game 
based on the award-winning short story by the same name by Neil Gaiman. Sherlock Holmes in H.P. Lovecraft. Deck building forms the core of the game. You use influence cubes to bid for the right to draft cards, take control of cities. Each player has a secret identity, either a restorationist fighting against the creatures or a loyalist attempting to defend the status quo. Which side you are on determines what you score points for. An additional twist is that the performance of other players on the same side as you can stop you from winning if they're doing particularly badly. So you really want to know who is on what side. More specifically, when the game ends, and this can result from a multiple of causes, such as a marker on the War of Revolution track hitting 15, or the assassination of a restorationist player agent, then the sides compare their scores. Which side has the lowest score automatically loses. Then the player with the highest score on the remaining team wins the game. The artwork is very eye-catching. And the theme on this sounds pretty interesting. Uh, you put together Sherlock Holmes, H.P. Lovecraft, and Neil Gaiman. And Martin Wallace, with all of its rough edges, yeah, this sounds like a game that I desperately want to get played. I've had it for way too long. Needs to find the table. Study an emerald. So if you're listening to this and you've listened to this show for any amount of time, watched any of the streams or anything like that over on YouTube, you probably could ascertain what the top two games are, the fact that you haven't heard them. But as it is, maybe you're new to this. My number two is what is generally accepted as the single best solitaire war game ever created. John Butterfield's magnum opus designed by Decision Games, and that is D-Day at Omaha Beach. You control the U.S. forces landing across uh, Omaha Beach, and the game hates you and will do everything it can as the Germans to stop you. It is one of the most intimidating-looking boards that I've ever seen. And has a significant learning curve, but I desperately want to get this played. If it's the best solitaire game in existence for war gamers, I got to get this to the table. Just got to get this to the table. Can't wait. D-Day at Omaha Beach, the end. Which brings us to number one. And why don't we just lose the... Uh, the qualifier of war game right and just say the generally accepted the best solitaire war or solitaire game in existence yeah mage knight ultimate edition now does it have to be the ultimate edition no that just happens to be the edition that i have mage knight i've heard you can play this multiplayer but everybody that i know says mage knight is a solo game so like I said, it can play up to five players, but I've heard the downtime can be oppressive. But as a solitaire game, just the best narrative and best meaningful decision, just giving you agency as the player. I have heard that some people do not like Mage Knight. I have yet to play it. 
but I suspect that I'm going to love it. Combining elements of RPGs, deck building, and traditional board games, Mage Knight puts you in control of one of four, but I think with the expansion, it's five, I think. Uh, powerful Mage Knights as you explore and conquer a corner of the Mage Knight universe under the control of the Atlantean Empire. Build your army, fill your deck with powerful spells and actions, explore caves and dungeons, and eventually conquer powerful cities controlled by this once great faction. In competitive scenarios, opposing players may uh, be powerful allies, but only one will be able to claim the land as their own. In cooperative scenarios, the players win or lose as a group. Solo rules are also included. I think that's funny because as, as I have heard, Mage Knight is best experienced solo. But your, your, uh, your mileage may vary in that regard. I'm probably before this thing airs, I will have already played Mage Knight because I plan on streaming it. But I hope it lives up to expectation. It's going to be really hard for it to because I've heard so many amazing things about Mage Knight. But I love games like Skyrim, Oblivion, you know, like uh, first person uh, solo RPG video games, right? Fallout, that type series. So basically Skyrim, the board game, kind of. Yeah, I'm all in on this. I hope it lives up to expectation. But man, those expectations are so high right now. But we'll see. So there you go. My top 42 most want to play games on my shelf of opportunity, or will be in the case of a few of these games that I don't own quite yet, but will soon enough. So there you go. I'm curious to hear from all of y'all, what games do you have that are high on your shelf of opportunity? What games have you owned? And haven't gotten to the table yet for any myriad of reasons. I'm curious what they would be. What are they? Tell me. So reach out. Let me hear. I'm curious to hear what's on y'all's list. So there you go. My top 42. Other than that, uh, that's about all I got for you guys this week. I hope you enjoyed this. Let me know. Tell me. Send me a tweet. Send me an email. Hit me up at Heavy Cardboard. As far as other stuff going on, I really miss playing poker a lot still. It's been, it's been a minute. Uh, damn you, COVID. So, yeah. Poker rooms are open. I just haven't played. So, yeah. And I'm really curious uh, for everybody out there, new generation of video game systems are coming out right ps5 and the xbox series x i'm curious to see how pre-orders go i was always the kid that would wait in line overnight to make sure that i was the first to get them and i'm now at that age now to where i mean i just recently not too long ago got a ps4 i've always been a playstation not fanboy, but uh, a bigger fan of PlayStation because they have the games that are more interesting to me. So I haven't really terribly been really excited or interested in what Xbox has, but we'll see how that goes. 
That said, I'm probably not going to pre-order any of them. I say this, probably not. I don't think so. But if so, it'd be the PS5. But we'll see. I'm curious to see how the pre-orders go. Anyway, that's it. That's it for me this week. Thanks for everybody's patience. I'm waiting on this one. And I will be back next week. So be sure to wear your masks, social distance, be kind to one another. And tell me what's on your shelf of opportunity. Take care, everybody.